Welcome to The Entrepreneur, conversations with entrepreneurs who view their past failures as learning experiences rather than setbacks. Today's guests on The Entrepreneur, Laura Bronner and Jill Kravitz, the co-founders of Gloss 48. We could have taken bigger bets with the money, but I was so worried about conserving cash. We were keeping our cards pretty close to the vest because we didn't want them to know how close we were to shutting down the company. They ended up calling our bluff. Sometimes you got to really be honest with yourself, maybe be a little less proud. Now here's the host of The Entrepreneur, Ashley Breed. All right, so Gloss 48. Let's start with just what is it and how did you guys come together to form Gloss 48? Gloss 48 was an e-commerce marketplace for independent beauty brands. And we came up with the idea, gosh, Laura, 2010? Yeah, probably. Yeah, 2010. We built a beta and ran it for about three months and, you know, faked every part of the process and and ended up after three months going out and raising a first round of funding. And basically the business model for Gloss 48 was tapping into the 50,000 or so independent beauty brands at the time that were on the market. I'm sure there's a lot more now. And basically giving them a voice and catering to on the, on the, demand side catering to a population of what we used to call beauty junkies. So really primarily women who are who were, are looking for the latest and greatest innovation in beauty and independent brands and cool brands and brands that are not necessarily, you know, on on drugstore shelves or in Sephora at the time. And so we would partner with these brands, we would tell their story online, we would market the crap out of them for a, a brief period. And there would be promotional pricing on the on the brand for again, that brief period for about a week, we launched a new brand on the site every day. And after the, the week period, they would still stay on our site most of the time. And it would be more of a marketplace model at that point where we would just get a percentage of the sale. So we, we built the, built the platform, built the community. We raised an initial round of funding and hired a team and ran the business. And, you know, we knew that raising a second round was going to be challenging. And so we started almost right after we launched and pitched. You know, I like to say we probably did about 150 pitches in 12 months or so while we were running the company. And, you know, Laura and I would get on on the train, get on train to New York, spend the day pitching and come back just absolutely deflated. And, you know, at the end of 12 months of pitching, we were not able to raise the second round. And so we had to kind of think about different alternatives and ultimately ended up having to shut down the business. Well, and I think what was what where the idea really came from was that we, Jill and I used to run Mini Lux. That's how we met. Jill was the president of Mini Lux and she hired me to come and help her get it to expand. And when we were at Mini Lux, we were fairly small and we 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 went after a national beauty brand that was kind of cool at the time. We went after Bliss to get them to sell the mini lux. And through personal relationships, we got Bliss to sell to us, even though we were we were really small at that point and they wouldn't normally sell to a retailer our size. And we were so proud of ourselves that we got this big brand on our shelves. And our our 
customers weren't really interested in it. They really, they were much more interested in the niche interesting, hard to find brand, which is, you know, that's where Sephora started back in the day when they came to the U.S. in the 90s. They only carried niche brands because the big beauty conglomerates, L'Oreal and Estee Lauder, wouldn't work with them. And over time, Sephora really started focusing on brands that were owned by those big conglomerates and moving away from the niche brands. And so we were sort of filling that gap that Sephora had left by connecting these awesome brands, which who all had these like amazing founders and great stories to beauty lovers. And so the idea was, was, you know, to sort of solve that hole in the market. And it worked aside from not being able to scale or get that second round of funding. Is that how you would sort of characterize it? Yeah. I mean, I think the, the piece that worked really well from the beginning, even in our beta phase, where as Jill said, we were, we would sit there and there was a flash sale component to it. So we would sit there at 11 o'clock every day and manually turn all the products on. That's how we faked it. We, I mean, it was, we, we, we just made it work. One of the things that worked really well during that time was I became a beauty blogger, which is hilarious for anyone who's ever met me. But I, because I became a beauty blogger, I, I stepped into this world of beauty bloggers. The, the beauty blogger community is very collegial. And so they knew me as a beauty blogger before we launched Gloss 48. And because of that, we had this amazing network of sort of a mutually beneficial relationship where I would say, you know, we have this awesome product coming on the site next week. Would you be interested in, in reviewing it? You know, what you say about it is up to you, but I'm going to send it to you. You can sample it. And then I hope you write about it on your blog and then we'll, we'll feature you on our website. So we, we kind of cracked the very early stage, like marketing and content piece that was, that was really successful, but then that was hard to scale. And I would say the biggest challenge of the business, you know, more than anything was, as Jill alluded to, while there is definitely a market for this kind of site, and there, is, there, there are more than enough vendors to feature, feature on a daily basis who have awesome products and awesome stories, selling that to the investor community was really challenging. When you think about product market fit, at the time, so the 2011, 2012, when we were out fundraising, most investors were male and most of them were over a certain age. And so they weren't shopping online. Their wives weren't shopping online and they didn't get beauty. They couldn't get excited about beauty. And so in terms of product market fit for looking for funding, we had a really hard time with those conversations. We would start conversations and investors would say things like, I mean, how many products could a woman possibly use? And our response was 48. That's why we're Glock 48. That, that's <laughs> because, and we even had this slide. We had this slide in our pitch deck that was a picture of a J. Crew model. So she looked very like fresh faced, like she might not be wearing any makeup, but you know she's wearing a ton of makeup. And we deconstructed all of the products all 48 products that she could have possibly been using, you know, head to toe. But it's really hard to start a conversation with how many products could a woman possibly use and hope to get to a check of any reasonable size from an investor. It just, it's a really hard sell at that point. So I would say that was, that was, a, that was a big challenge. Yeah. I remember, you know, when we knew each other then at the PayPal Start Tank and you guys sort of feeling really frustrated going into all these investor meetings with men. 
and seeking out female investors as much as you possibly could. And when you say product market fit, it actually makes me think that the product market fit is more on the side of the, you know, the, the evolution of the female investor and the female network. If you had had maybe access or if there was female capital networks, you may have fared better. Is that something, I mean, is that fair to say? I think that's fair to say, and there really weren't many female investors. I think that the issue is, you know, even today, only like 6% of uh, venture funding goes to female founders. I'm sorry, 6% of venture investors are female, I should say. And so the, the other thing you really have to think about, and this is one of our, our lear- at least my learnings from this, is when you think about competition for your startup, a lot of people just kind of think about that in the traditional sense as, you know, who are my competitors in the market? So if our, you know, Gloss 48, we had Birchbox, we had I don't know, a bunch of other kind of mail order beauty boxes as our competitors, some of which are still around. And and that's that's fine to think about. You need to think about competitors that way. But the the other thing that founders really need to keep in mind is the competition for for funding, particularly if you're a female focused business. And so we actually, I mean, one of the first things we did to try to get the second round raised was to go to any VC who had expressed any interest, whether they'd written a check or talked to or anything in any kind of female focused business. And so we would go to these investors like Kristen Green at Forerunner and you know, all of these like pretty well-known female investors because there's like five of them. And they'd all already placed their bets. So, you know, in terms of competition, Birchbox ahead of us had raised a hundred million dollars and, you know, that was the bet. And so, you know, unfortunately, I think even if we had had those, we did have connections to the, to the, the female venture investors and also, and also men who were interested in investing in female focused businesses, but they really only had a very limited amount of their pie that they were willing to dedicate to beauty. And they had already done that. So yeah. we are, we were kind of locked out from a competitive standpoint on the funding side. That's so I also got the sense that when we spoke to female investors, I always felt kind of bad for them because it was sort of like, oh, here's a, here's a girly business. Go review this one. Like I always got the sense that they saw every even remotely female business, which makes sense, but it also was a little bit, it was challenging for them as investors because they weren't getting to see, all, see the full deal flow. They were getting to see this very specific group. But I always, I felt for them on, on that front. And then I think, you know, just the reality is even the, the men we talked to who were, you know, evolved and, and, you know, thinking about the right thing. They only place a certain number of bets every year as investors. And so they really want to get excited about something. And I think it was just hard for them to get excited about a beauty e-commerce business. And then they would go home and talk to their wives about it. And their wives would say, that's interesting, but I would never buy a beauty product online. And I've, I've only shopped at the Lancome counter for the last 40 years. So we were just, it was, we were really hitting the wrong market. Do you think it would be, I mean, you mentioned you talked to, you know, you made a hundred, over 150 pitches. I mean, was there a point at which you said, okay, I think we've talked to everybody we could possibly talk to, or, you know, was there that feeling that ever came over you? I think we, we pushed as hard as we could possibly push until we were running out of money to the point where it just wouldn't have helped. So we even 
some of our existing investors offered to re-up and, you know, we got a call from one of them saying, if we, even if we just gave you like one more month of cash, would that help? And, and we were at that point where unless we could get $2 million in, that wasn't going to help. We were very aggressive about getting, getting meetings and getting in front of people, even if we didn't think they would necessarily write a check, like just networking hard. But I also think we were pretty good about, you know, being efficient with our time. So if we realized, you know, pretty quickly that this person was not going to be a source of capital or connections, then we would probably move on. But yeah, I think we went after everybody. I mean, we we pitched to a friend, <laughs> a friend of Laura's, one of her one of her friends' dads in a golf club, and I had to change from my jeans in, <laughs> into into her mother or her daughter's yoga pants in the bathroom like with everything to get in front of i forgot about that interested investors i remember i held i just remember i forgot but i held a like angel investors night at my yes house. women you did yeah yeah they did anything it was awesome it's i mean was it just i mean i remember being in the star tank at the same time as you at a completely different phase and you guys had 70,000 people coming to your website on a monthly basis. I mean, you guys were top of the heap and it's, you know, you had a very loyal following. You had everything except just one critical piece of cash. Yeah. I'll be vague about it because I'm pretty sure we're, we signed a confidentiality agreement, but we were talking to another company who wanted to do a marketing partnership with us. And Jill and I talked about this was months, probably six months before we ultimately closed. And Jill and I talked about it in advance and said, this is our Hail Mary. Let's try to turn this into them acquiring us. Instead of doing a marketing partnership, it made total sense. They had a ton of users, but no revenue. We had all these brands ready to go. Our, their, their customer base would have been a great fit for, for our product. And over a two or three month period, we we did successfully transition it to a potential acquisition. We even, we went out to California at one point and got awesome advice, which was, you know, don't focus on on hammering out the deal when you're out there. Just woo them. Just get them to want to work with you. And we left and the the founder was like sending us emails with like multiple exclamation points, like just so excited to work with us. And then we're not actually sure what happened. We think probably a board member stepped in or somebody, somebody you know, put their, put the foot on the, on the break. And at, at that point, we didn't have enough money left for other options. But even through that, we were looking for that partnership somewhere else. But I think that was, that was sort of our last gap at, at fundraising and potentially could have worked out. Although I saw a lot as the deal unraveled that made me feel like had we end up ended up working for that company because we were acquired, it may not have turned out super well. Yeah, and it's kind of like if you had any regrets or if you ever just wanted to call them up and say, hey, what happened? But it sounds like you sort of did your own. You watched it happen also on the other side of it, which was... Yeah, I'm not sure I have any regrets. I'd love to hear Jill perception of that. I'm not sure I have any regrets, but I also think if we called and spoke to the founder he wouldn't give us a straight answer. I don't think he's that kind of guy. I, we definitely mm -hmm. tried to get an answer at some point, but I don't, 
I have a very, my gut reaction to him towards the end of that was, this is not someone I wanted to work for. Yeah, I I think my, I have a regret, which is without getting too much into the details of what we were negotiating at the end, I, I think, and I, I take responsibility because I remember pushing hard on it. I think we negotiated too hard. I think that they, you know, we, we were keeping our, cards are pretty close to the vest because we really didn't want them to know, you know, how close we were to shutting down the company. And so, you know, we pushed pretty hard and, and they ended up basically calling our bluff. Yep. And so I think, and that was a learning for me. I think that sometimes you just, you know, you got to really be honest with yourself and it's, it's, and maybe be a little less proud. And, but having said that, I think Laura's right. Even if we hadn't done that and the deal had gone through, I think it probably would have been a nightmare to work, work with them. So I also think like that's the name of the game, right? Is always in negotiation kind of, there's always an act of desperation. You always want to put your best foot forward and, you know, not to put a gender card on it, but certainly, you know, that's, the way, you know, men negotiate, which is a lot of just don't call my bluff because I'm not going to let you see all my cards. So it's, yeah. I, it's just unfortunate. And I'm, I'm sorry, sort of. Thing. But I mean, I think in terms of regrets, like for the entire experience, I think Laura, I think you and I have talked about this, although I'm not sure if we have been that explicit. I, from my perspective, I think I should have been a little freer. I feel like we could have taken bigger bets with the money, but I was so worried about kind of conserving cash that we didn't make big bets that we that might have helped us grow our following, you know, more quickly and in, in bigger spurts. Yeah. And so, and I'm thinking primarily of like, we made one big bet on a Pinterest campaign, on Pinterest you know, marketing, but, you know, I'm thinking, I think to, to, at that time to, to get a significant campaign on Pandora, which was like kind of the Spotify before or as Spotify was growing, it was like $25,000 or something. And we just were like not able to swallow that pill. That's my only regret. I would say. Jill, today in all of your businesses and being now, uh, you know, a female venture capitalist, do you make bigger bets? Is that something that you've kind of embraced now or is it still ingrained? That's a great question. So I actually am not raising my fund. I was raising a fund that was focused on funding female targeted businesses, not necessarily female founders, but businesses like Gloss 48 that did target a female demographic. And I stopped that. And I think you asked earlier about sort of scars and whether I remember that feeling of of failure. And I absolutely remember that every single freaking day. And so, you know, when I started my fund and with my my partner at the time at Lakshmi, the two of us went out to to raise the fund. And I just at the beginning I, I was digging my heels in. She wanted me to do it. And I was like, I can't go fundraise again. I just can't do it. And she convinced me and because the business case was there and it's still there. And it's a very, it's a great, I think it's a great opportunity for enterprising, you know, people who want to raise a fund. It's just very hard without a track record. And, you know, every single pitch that I did was, it just brought back everything about Gloss 48 that was bad. Like every 
every bad pitch, every, it just was like every day I was reminded of failure again and again. And so even though I think Siren Ventures, which was the name of our fund, is, is still a fantastic opportunity, I'm not the right person to do it because I'm, I think I'm kind of permanently scarred from just so many pitches and not getting what we wanted to get out of it. So in terms of my business now, I do. I mean, we, you know, right now I do, I, I do consulting. I have a few clients, you know, my primary job right now is to run a company called I Relaunch, which helps professionals return to the paid workforce after a career break. And, you know, we're not making huge bets, but in this environment, we're having to shift a lot of our business online. We run big events, in-person events with six or 700 people in New York. And so we're having to move all of that online. And that, you know, for us, it's, it's, an, it's necessary, but it's also a big bet. So we have to, you know, in, time, in a time where, you know, it, cash is very important, we have to invest in a virtual platform. You know, we got to do stuff that it feels really uncomfortable, but I, I am definitely, I, I always remember that feeling of, you know, had we taken a little bit more risk, we might have succeeded with Glass 48. And Laura, what about you? What are your sort of battle wounds and scars that you really take away from some of the Glass 48 experience? Actually, we shut down Glass 48 when I was in the hospital having my second child, which I we had been prepped for for a while. Jill and I decided that we were going to keep at it until our absolute last fundraiser, like potential fundraising option fell through because we felt like we owed it to our investors. But we only had a few more options really on the table. And so we, at that point, Jill called me, I, I think I was like in the hospital or on my way. And she said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm ready to send out the email. This last opportunity fell through. Do, do I have your blessing? And I said, yeah. And I didn't really think about it, but because we sent an email to her, right? Because I was in labor. I, I, and, and what we did was send an email out to I forget the total, but probably like 90,000 people all in one go. We said, we're closing down Glock 48. And the response we got back, I, I at that point felt like I was this huge failure. Like I, Glock 48 was me and I had failed. And we got this huge response back, which was, you know, I'm so sad to see the site go. I loved it. To which I reply, you should have bought something or invested in us. <laughs> and then the but the second piece of it, and this was like overwhelmingly common to hear, it was, what are you and Jill going to do next? Will it be in the beauty business? I can't wait to see what it is. And I just had this moment where I was like, wow, I'm the only one who thinks that I've failed right now. This is such a weird response to get to, I'm closing my business. And I think it was a good learning that what I thought was failure, lots of people were sort of like, Welcome to being an entrepreneur. Like this is, you did it. Like this was your first battle wound. Pick yourself up. What are you going to do next? So it was just an interesting perspective. And since then, I, I feel like I've become a weird resource for people who are worried about their startup because when you have a startup, it's really hard to talk about what's not going well because typically you're fundraising. And so it's really hard to admit that things aren't perfect. Even when we were in the PayPal start tank, I, it was awesome to be around all this, these other entrepreneurs, but everyone was always always sort of like, things are awesome. Like, here are all the things that are going well, because you don't want it to get around town awesome. that 
Yeah, everything's awesome. Everyone was everyone was doing great things. And then someone would close their business the next day and you're like, wait, I thought things were awesome. But it was it was hard to admit when things were going wrong because you were fundraising and you had to give off this aura of success. And so after we closed, I found I've given talks a few times on what it felt like to fail. And and someone did this for us when we were struggling. And it was, I just remember it being so valuable, but it's really, you realize you never hear from entrepreneurs and what, it, how horrible it is to, to feel that failure. And as an entrepreneur, it's really helpful to hear it. So in this weird way, this, like my failure has turned into kind of a positive thing. I will say the, the one battle wound I definitely have, and I echo Jill is, is the fundraising piece. I, I currently look for roles where I'm not required to fundraise. And I, the response I get is like, oh yeah, fundraising's hard. And that's not really it. It's not that I have a hard time selling things or having uncomfortable conversations or putting myself out there. I do that on a daily basis. It's, it's that it is, it is such an enormous waste of time and you get so little out of it. So when you go out and fundraise, you don't really learn anything because people don't really tell you the truth. After, you know, probably your, I don't know, five or 10 pitches, you, you work out the, the nervousness around it and the, the, you know, that, that general fear of sale. And then it's just an enormous time suck. And so I always felt like if I could have just taken that time that we spent pitching and devoted it to business, maybe I would have made better decisions or maybe I would have figured unlocked something. So I would say my war wound is similar to Jill. I just don't want to pitch anymore. I don't, it's, it's such a fruitless exercise. Well, I'm relieved to hear that you don't feel that, you know, we're getting, sharing no in a pitch didn't reflect on you personally in the pitch and that I think it sounds like you guys had such a strong base and such a strong following and were so committed to your your members that it didn't feel necessarily personal to you or that in your, you know, I feel like sometimes with startups and with our ideas, there's so much identity that is wrapped up with being the CEO of a company. And when they say no to your company or fund your company, or they're saying no to you or vice versa. But it sounds like you were able to kind of disassociate from feeling it being totally personal to you, but feeling like it's an enormous waste of time. I want to get back to the things that are going well in my business. Yeah. I mean, I would say at the beginning for me, it was very personal. I, it was hard for me to separate the rejection from just like, I, I felt like they were making a judgment about our capabilities, but I realized like, I, I knew that was irrational and I knew, and, and just based on Laura's and my backgrounds and just our capabilities and our dedication and work ethic, I knew that they were not making that. It was not a personal thing. I also knew that it was just obvious after several meetings, it was just obvious that they just didn't, they didn't relate to the business. So it was not really about the two of us. And what really helped for me, and I think Laura is we developed like a really clear process for fundraising. And so we had, a, you know, a pipeline and we had pipeline meetings every Monday. And it was, so for me, was, I was able to make it more about the process and less about me getting a no. It was just like, okay, we went and pitched this person. Did they say yes, no? What do we have to do? Like, it was just more about the actions and less about the feelings. So it, that was helpful. And eventually, eventually you just stop taking it personally because, you start to hear the same things over and over and you realize, and this is one thing that 
I just don't think entrepreneurs realize that that much is that the reason you're starting this is because it, it probably doesn't exist or it's something and it's not or there's not a good comparable out there. So you're starting something totally new and you're talking to people who are pretending like they know what the right thing is to do when if it doesn't right. exist, how could they possibly know that? So it's like you realize that. And they've only spent they they've only spent the 10 minutes. 10 minutes. Yeah, the 10 minutes that you've been pitching and and paging through the deck to respond to your idea. And and yet they're going to come up with something earth-shattering that you hadn't thought about even though you spend every second of every day thinking about your idea. I would say the other thing I think that really helped, and I totally just cut you off. <laughs> no, go ahead. The other thing that would help is that we were doing it together. I, I, I would have given up probably much sooner had I not been in it with Jill. I, Jill and I had worked together before and, and she's one of my favorite people to work with because there's just a mutual trust there. And well, by, I think we have really you know, complementary skill sets. Like we're, we're really similar on some levels and then on other levels, we're like totally different, which is good, really good. Yeah. I, I hope you it was together again. Honestly, I would love to see the Kravitz Briar partnership one more time. We would too. But there was something awesome there about that. Even today, like when I'm sitting at my desk and I'm thinking like, what do I do? Like if I'm, if I'm faced with a situation and, and or, or if I'm even like, I just don't have any motivation. I just don't feel like doing anything. I literally will think like, well, what would Laura be doing right now? <laughs> if Laura were sitting across from me, like what would we be doing? What would we be saying to each other? So it's a last oh. fact. <laughs> so in winding down Gloss 48 and for other entrepreneurs, what does that underbelly really look like of the conversations or the retros or the uncomfortable, you know, discussions that need to happen are there any i mean what was what were those sort of final weeks or the weeks post that email look like so well i actually so the email we had a couple emails so one was to our investors so that was probably the first email was you know very transparently and we've been keeping them up to date quarterly so they they had a sense but you know when it was getting close we sent what I like to call a send and slam email. You basically send it and slam your computer shut. And, like it. you know, we sent an email basically just saying it's getting, it, it's getting tight. We're, we're probably, we're pretty likely to have to shut down. We are still exploring all kinds of alternatives, but we want to give you a heads up. This is what, this is where we are today. So that was, I think that was like December of 2014. It was like, it was, it was a, a tough, week and we sent that and then we we sent the final email to our our gloss 48 you know beauty junkies or subscribers and our and our beauty brands but you know i think that that those were very tough to write i think some of the the other things that were part of the wind down were just keeping our team informed so we had a team of six and, you know, they were pretty aware of our cash situation. And as it got closer to the end, you know, we were just really honest with them. And we said, we can pay you through this date, but we can't promise anything beyond that. And it ended up, you know, they, we had to let them all go. And I remember Laura and I sitting on the floor because we had also, I think we sold our office furniture or somehow it left, sold it. And I remember Laura and I like sitting on the floor of our office because there was no furniture left. 
and and the rest of our team they were working from home i think they still helped out and you know and i and and it was it was sort of like a gradual you know shutting down but i would say like the team discussions were probably the most challenging for me the discussions with investors were also challenging but our investors to their credit for the most part were extremely understanding and extremely supportive and would and many of them said that they would invest in something we did in the future despite this not that we were going not that you wanted to go out and fundraise again but it's nice to have that support yeah i mean i would say one of the things i'm proud of is how we unwound the business i i it was not a surprise to our investors or our staff and i think we did we did a good job of bringing everybody in enough that they weren't blindsided at any point but also keeping them engaged enough that they hadn't given up on us really ever so if we if we called that staff back a week later and said just kidding we just got funding we need you to come back in they would have all you know happily come back and i one of the things that i'm proud of is just you know our our startup ran out of cash and i i think we handled it as great as gratefully as possible it sounds yeah i think part of it the the natural tendency would be to run and hide but there's you know accountability and there is conversations that need to happen to close out with you know grace and dignity and class which you guys obviously did was it hard yeah. though but not just was the tendency just to want to just send and slam and shut the doors and yes and no i mean you know we knew a lot of our investors before this. So it, there really wasn't a choice. Like you really couldn't hide. And I don't think it's it's really in either of our DNAs to do that. There might be a temptation, but I don't think it, we would ever, ever do that. You know, I think, and our team, our team was fantastic. I mean, they were all really great. And even, you know, one of them worked for us at Minilux and now she's working and she worked for us at Gloss 48. And now she's working for me and my in the company I'm running. And it's just, it's, it was a, I wish we could have gone on because it was a really a great yeah. team. And it was really, everyone was, was special for different reasons and everyone contributed and it was, it was great. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we still, even now, what is it? Five years later? I know this because it's yeah. the age of my son. Five years later, yeah. We still have a tech string that has the team on it. We still interact. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it was, it was awesome. I don't, I don't, I don't regret it. No, not at all. Uh, It's, it's such an amazing story and a real testament to both of you. One of my final questions is describe yourself by saying three things that you are not. And I'll give you a minute to think it through because I'm springing that on you. I am not an extrovert. (laughs) <laughs> I am not a great salesperson. I would say that I am not naturally risk loving. Would you say that I, qualities for an entrepreneur? Or I mean, I think you make the case that it it certainly is not. But on paper, I I think that I think being risk loving is not necessarily needed to be an entrepreneur because I think that. If you say you're risk loving or risk taking it, that sounds very careless. So it's sort of, I think what is critical is that you have an appetite for risk, but it's balanced by 
responsibility, just like sanity. And then I think an extrovert, being an extrovert, I don't think is necessary for an entrepreneur at all. And I think sales, you know, I don't think the entrepreneur has to have sales, but I do think that someone in the company at a senior level has to have that sales ability. And I would say, you know, Laura and I balance each other out really well on that front. Like Laura is a much more outgoing, friendly person. No, that I am. <laughs> and she's also like a lot taller. No, but so, you know, when we had, yeah. we had pitch meetings or if we had to go to like a stupid networking thing or whatever, you know, I, I would, I'd be the one who'd like kind of state, like I, I'd state the facts or, I'd, and Laura, when, when they'd ask the question, they'd follow up with a question. I'd, I'd be able to like relax for a second and Laura would take over because she's much more comfortable just like putting herself out there. But that's where I would disagree that you're not a good salesperson. I think the that image of whether it's an entrepreneur or just somebody in sales in general of being that like slick talker, I don't think that resonates with with people. And I I all the time, at least. And I think that there is something about your transparency and and being straightforward that people do appreciate that makes you a better salesperson in lots of ways because you know people people know that you're not going to BS them yeah that's my job yeah. I mean I guess I guess my 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 feeling is that some some of the pitches we didn't do well on or we didn't get we didn't get a good response from sometimes it had to do with us not being able to spin and not like always pushing on all the positives and it completely ignoring the negatives. And both you and yeah. I, you know, would never do that. But I remember we had that session with Janet Krauss, who we we did a, a practice pitch with her. And I remember her saying, like, you guys need to stop apologizing for things that didn't go well and you need to highlight things that did go well. And I learned a ton from that. Yeah. And I just don't think that's a natural ability of mine. But yeah, so I guess Salesperson isn't the, maybe isn't the right word. I'm not a good spin master. <laughs> yes. You're yeah. already better. I mean, that's a, your heart's spinning. I love it. Laura, what are three things that you would say you are not? I am not quiet. I also would say I'm also not good at spin. I'm, I, I don't know what the, the not version of transparent is, but secretive is not that. I'm not secretive. I'm not, I'm not, I don't play game. And I would also say I'm not a, dreamer in the I feel like everybody always talked about entrepreneurs having to be these like kind of crazy risk-taking dreamers and I I don't think I'm that I think I'm much more rational since you guys are much more pragmatic and rational than emotional yeah and oh I'll add one more I'm a, this, this one I'm gonna violate your three I'm not a cowboy I think a lot of entrepreneurs are are cowboys and get rewarded. It's not who I am. And I think that there's a there's a tendency to, to portray yourself as that because it tends to, you know, generate buzz and get funding and and confidence and all the things. But I don't think it's not it's not authentic, for sure. Yeah, agreed. Thank you again for chatting with me, talking to me about all of this. Again, I really hope the band gets back together like, uh, real soon. <laughs> oh. I think the world needs Bonner Kravitz together again. So. Aww. <laughs> we Thank agree. You. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening to The Entrepreneur. Please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. To learn more about The Entrepreneur, including booking information, please visit pod617.com slash entrepreneur. The Entrepreneur is a production of pod617.com, the Boston Podcast Network.